Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. This season's broad theme is navigating uncharted territory. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are absolutely buzzing to be joined by a big inspo for us at Surviving Society, Luke Dinarona. Luke has been on the podcast before. I would recommend he, and I don't know about you, but listening to the previous episode with Luke. Of course I'd recommend it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> listening to the previous episode, it's, it's going to really complement and also build from the discussions we were having before because Luke has just published deporting black britain's portraits of deportation to jamaica and i think it's because i'm getting a bit softer now you know the book (laughs) made me cry i think on four different occasions you have to read it to believe it how emotional and moving it is i wasn't moved like that but it made me feel kind of upset like thinking like the idea of belonging like do i ever belong it made me question that because like these guys they went through a lot the idea of belonging is a continual thing as a black British person, sometimes I think, do I actually belong? Is it me next? Those kind of questions that went through my head. Luke is based at the University of Manchester and is a sociologist slash anthropologist. Again, assuming that you've listened to the previous episodes, which you need to, this should be a follow-up conversation. It made me emotional, but as you say, also like a frustration, like, do I really mm. belong? Luke, say hello to the listeners again. Hi, everyone. <laughs> um, thanks so much for that lovely introduction. It's so nice to be back and chat with you as always one of the things that we were really keen to discuss in this episode with you Luke is the sort of the after deportation life Mm -hmm. because I think one of the things that we did in the previous episode with you when you did some really good myth busting basically on Mm -hmm. deportation and the UK and Jamaica's relationship and how that relates to deportation I remember us being sat in the studio just being like Mm -hmm. didn't know that didn't know it's linked to aid didn't know what happened afterwards prison to deportation was such a tight-knit thing and it seems really wrong to say that didn't know that but we didn't know that that was a really important conversation obviously the book talks a lot about that stuff but in particular me and Tiso were keen to discuss with you this post-deportation life and how deportation affects families and how it affects the people that are left behind And then how the deportees are impacted and live their lives in Jamaica after deportation. And I think you say in the book, there's such little research and scholarship and information on this part of the journey as well. In the chapters in which you talk about this stuff, it's almost like a call to arms amongst researchers to actually think like what is happening. Obviously, we can talk about state violence. We need to talk about state violence. We need to eradicate it. But what happens when that violence has occurred, appeals fail and life goes on, as you say in the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for that. There's a few things to pick out there. I mean, so to give a brief overview of what the book does before we get there, there's kind of four chapters after the introduction for four individual men who now live in Jamaica. In those chapters, when I was writing it, I did feel like I was moving across time and in terms of times in people's lives. So I'm chatting with Jason in Kingston on the university campus about his life in East London 10 years ago or five years ago, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Moving through time in narrative, so it's kind of life stories, uh, method, 
interviews or whatever. And then kind of me moving across space as well. So there might be a point where I've asked Ricardo about racism, but to find out a bit more, I went back to West Brom and chatted to his friends there and they we were actually back where it's still happening and we chatted from there. So there's the first chapters on the, the guys' lives do have, I am trying to move across time and space and get a bit of the UK move between narrative and, and in the moment when we're chatting. But I did feel like what was really important to do fully and I had so much material on it was one, how do we understand what happens to people themselves when they're deported and they're back in Jamaica and you're right there's not much research on that I think you guys probably have a better sense of the scope of sociological research in the UK at the moment but for practical reasons people tend to do research here and if if kind of one of the good things we might get from looking sideways into anthropology or even development studies or whatever in the critical areas is that you get research from from elsewhere being youngish and freeish to do a phd i wanted to go to jamaica and do the work from there um, and see how people did afterwards and start there and move backwards and then the other chapter you're talking about which comes before when family and friends is kind of what what's left in the wake for people who remain in the uk how do they rebuild and how does it change how they understand the country they're in so I'm glad we're focusing on those because I think I hadn't until you you put it that way thought about how they kind of come as a pair of what of what's of what's after and and how they really make clear the UK and Jamaica and separate them out in a way which they're not separated out as discreetly in the life life story chapters the portraits throughout the book sometimes I think you're a bit harsh on yourself Luke you talk about the fact that it's male dominated and that you've only really spoken to male deportees one of the things that you do in the later chapters even though the portraits are focused on the guys is you talk about the gendered implications of deportation on girlfriends wives and mothers and I think that's something that we weren't necessarily able to touch on last year when we spoke because we hadn't read this yet but I think that that connection really shows how important it is to focus on family and care and family not necessarily in the nuclear sense but like what we'd like to think as family is not necessarily biological mm. and I think really I know you've written about that recently as well I think that's such a a poignant and important part of the book it's true like you talk about the criminalization who's more likely to be criminalized obviously black women do get criminalized in different ways but there is a very particular experience that black men have just because you're talking about men in that instance doesn't mean there aren't gendered implications for the women in their lives and i think that you do that so well it means a lot coming from you shut up speaking up from what chantel said like the kind of the wake so there's there seems to be a cost associated with with mixing and this cost has a historical importance so what i kind of liked in the book is like the book kind of reflects that historical parallel like these echoes in time is captured in the system so deportation and exclusion and 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 ranking up by hierarchy is a continuation almost of the of the legacies of colonialism Mm. for me like that I'm kind of interested in the structural nature of things, how this plays out. I was reading the 1620 slave laws of, I think, Sid Nevis. When I was reading your book, it had similar parallels. The punishments for, say, for example, mixed-race couples, if it, if it was a white lady seeing a black guy, the punishments for the white lady were very severe, economic at times, and definitely social. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's a really interesting one that I don't, I don't go into in as much detail, but I think... I mean, this story, I suppose, uh, that comes in in kind of black studies and histories of enslavement around enforced kinlessness um, and the ways in which uh, anti-black racism and enslavement produced certain forms of kinlessness and denied people legal and all rights to kind of have and define their own families and family life. There's a connection there. I don't think 
I don't think I draw it out in the book, but I'm I'm glad that you made the connection because in some some places in the book, I suppose, just a cop out. But if you don't if you don't feel like you've got the necessarily the analytical skills, sometimes the, there's a poetry in those connections anyway. And so I feel similar with charter flights and enslavement, for example. There's there's a way in which people make that connection sometimes, and I don't want to do that in a crass way because I think you have to be careful when you say, "Oh, charter flights are the new slavery." Or they're just, this is the modern day slave ship. You know, I, I've heard people, anti-racists say that. And I, I wouldn't say something like that. But yeah, if you describe uh, what someone tells you about what it means to be taken from your partner in the middle of the night and uh, a body brace be used on you while you're put on a plane with 36 other black people while all the escorts are mostly white. I mean, it's hard not to see that connection. And I think people should make that yeah. themselves. And sometimes for me, I don't feel like I need to kind of create any analytic closure on that relationship between family kinlessness in different times but um but I would be glad if other people take that up and I think no definitely (laughs) I completely agree with T's point there like as I was reading like the quote-unquote fallout of the deportation for the families and friends and you mentioned the white woman who had relationships with people that had been deported Mm. used to go out with Chris I was thinking about colonialism and I was thinking Mm -hmm. about slavery and how the stripping away of someone Mm -hmm. what you did and how you described it in describing it through description Mm -hmm. if that makes sense Mm -hmm. was so much better than saying this is like slavery Mm -hmm. it made made me think that's what it made me think about it Mm -hmm. made me think about like centuries of anti-black racism like Mm -hmm. that is what I was thinking even though the portraits are so beautiful I love portraiture so much like Mm -hmm. I'm using it in my PhD Mm -hmm. as well and I think it's so brilliant but in looking at the people that surround the deportees, I think that you can really make those connections that you then go on to make later in the book about the importance of colonialism, slavery mm. and empire. It's absolutely brilliant. But hard to read, actually, I would say, yeah, Luke, in part. Yeah, these kinds of stories shouldn't not, you know, shouldn't be easy to read, I suppose. And that's why, for me, there's a real thing, there's a real feeling about um, about writing it right. And I know that there are kind of there are theoretical conversations about this and in anthropology, probably more than sociology, other than someone like Les Back, who we've probably all read and turned to for things about writing. But um, when when people had spent, had spent less time with me and given me some trust and told me a lot of stuff and let me in, I think that how you write really feels immediately political. So, yeah, it, it's, it, it doesn't surprise me that it's difficult to read because it was, you know, these are stories of quite extreme subjection to state violence and yeah forced human separation which is an old story uh, mm. that happens has happened in different ways but the resonance I mean what's interesting about the resonance you draw out there with kind of um, colonialism and miscegenation stuff uh, is that I hadn't thought about that necessarily in terms of the, the story of Louise who used to see Chris but as we were talking before we were sort of saying about how we might not have a set of kind of fixed legal regimes and laws which which legislate racial hierarchy in the same way as we had done before so it being illegal to like you talk about to for white and black people to have any kind of intimate relations but in some of these stories you see it you see it there you see the ways in which uh, the denial of right to family life um the who's which kinds of people who have children and that live in partnered relationships with people can we separate and, and how and i think when we start to think about that, it's not that, oh, it's the same old story just like it always was, but the the continuities are important. And I, I tried to in the book kind of, I suppose that's what we're all doing, the play of continuity and, ch- and, and, uh, and change, but, you know, try and get at things that seem red to resonate. And then the things that are, that are in motion. And um, I think immigration law, 
when you start thinking about it, it presents loads of questions like that about anti-black racism in this case, uh, about the colonial ordering of the world, about global inequalities, about gender and the family and respectability and who who counts and whose life matters. I mean, I was actually just listening to Gargi, our friend, um, on a podcast this morning, and she just made that point really well about bordering. And I think I think it's true. If, if, if you think of bordering and immediately you don't think that that's what racism is, that, that, that racism might have nothing to do with people being left to drown in the sea um, or people being detained in cages and being able to be separated from their families or being turned into animal, anim- using animal metaphors to talk about them as mm. vermin if you if that's not immediately get you thinking about what racism is then perhaps we've gone wrong somewhere in how we conceive racism and this book kind of begins with that question right how can we how can we connect the and the energy and work around anti-racism that exists uh, especially among young people to a kind of reckoning with the uk's immigration regime and how that re- how it reproduces that racism and so yeah i think these stories do it better than any um sometimes the description does it better than the any neat, clever, and analytical point will will for you. You see how you how they constructed well, because when people are speaking about they, mm. who they are, and mm-hmm. it's like how, how you oh describe, yeah, that's powerful. Kind of, the encountering the, the different, the basically the multi layer of fuckery that you're right, encountering. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a clearest way. T, do you want to just for the listeners that haven't read the book yet, get the book? Do you want to describe what what Luke does with they? Uh, correct me if I if I butcher <laughs> this. So they like. But after the kind of immigration service, the kind of the police, the various agencies in the counter, mm-hmm. the kind of the, basically the different parts of the state at different stages, right. depending where you are. So, be he might he might be he might have encountered. I think one respondent is the police he encounters the most, mm-hmm. and so he has a particular residence with the police. But it might be benefits agency, it might be right. whatever. But it's that continual level that it seems yeah, like it's yeah. planned because you keep encountering. It. And yeah. I I encounter this in day to day when you speak to people. People right. will speak about they, but it's mm-hmm. how you explain it. It's the continual, the continuation of the confrontation of all these different kind of agencies, one after the other. Mm-hmm. Babylon, yeah, Babylon. I mean, it is. It is actually. <laughs> I think. I think Babylon is definitely one way. One way of phrasing it, and also it's for me. It's how do you read conspiratorial impulses among the multiply oppressed generously? So basically, he's he is imagining that in some ways he's stretching what they are. So when he says, you know, they must have been planning this, there's a kind of imagination that the state is kind of more efficient than it is and that there's a group of people who actually are in real conversation with one another and who kind of want to see people deported and I don't think that's totally untrue the police uh, there are there are whole police forces where that kind of thing would not even be the worst kinds of things that they would do so it's not it's not that it's beyond reach but the the particular person who says who says they who I call Marcus in the book is one of Ricardo's friends and so just experience. I mean, horrendous, horrendous amounts of state racism from very early. is one of the ones that made me cry. But basically, the, the thing I'm asking in that chapter, and this this is a chapter that you, you're drawing out, the one on family and friends, is that I was interested in how two of... So Ricardo is one, one person in the book who I write about police racism with because he got so much police harassment, so much horrendous police racism, kept in stations, arrested all the time, never charged with anything, just not only the kind of familiar... A kind of disproportionate policing of young black people, but quite a localized, intense set of experiences in relation to his family being defined as a problem family and the police being scum. To be to be frank, absolutely awful. And so, him and his friends experienced the police in this way as a you know completely as a kind of occupying force that denied them the right to do anything. I'm interested in what his friends and family make of it, the ones that haven't been deported. And so, Marcus is someone who says, 
they must have been planning this from the start. And when he's saying they, he's not just talking about the police and, de- and the deportation. He's talking about people in prisons. He's talking about care workers. He's talking about people in secure units, which are children's homes where the doors are locked. Uh, he's talking about kind of everyone, as you say, in a position of authority who he encounters. And he says they. And I think this is what you mean when you speak to people and they say they and who is they. It's kind of like people call it might be Babylon. It might be kind of what people call like matrix chats. It might be kind of like we're getting to the bottom of this this thing, like what the system, you know, that, and people don't always have the tools to work out precisely what's going on. And they might come, that is, this is where sometimes you hear some of my conspiracy stuff come out, not necessarily related to state violence, but why is the world so messed up? And like, how is it rigged like this against me? So anyway, I think that his story is like, his explanation is like that. And I was interested in they, and first I felt like he's kind of simplifying this and it's slightly conspiratorial, but then I thought, but actually in some ways, the simple sociological argument would be that there is a kind of they because structurally, even if not with, with knowing conspirators, there's a relationship between care system, then being over-policed, especially if you're black, then be kind of, you know, if you grow up in care, then sort of everything ends up as a police issue that wouldn't be in a family. That's the story of why people in care end up in prison so much. And then the Home Office will try and deport absolutely anyone who has a criminal record or interacts with the criminal justice system. So he's kind of right. It was planned from the start, but I was just disputing that it was planned by people in a room kind of thing. Oh, I was supposed to say at the beginning of this episode, fuck the Home Office while we're here. Yeah. Just a reminder, more than ever, fuck the Home Office. More than ever, yeah. That they, that concept of they, I feel like was almost reignited after their friends or family member was deported. And I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that you draw on really well is that proximity to deportation makes, made the friends in particular, particularly the black men, feel even more on edge about Mm -hmm. whether they were going to get them or how they might enter their lives. That proximity to the deportation makes you realise how arbitrary the whole thing seems. So if it's arbitrary, it could be me next. So what does that mean? So what does that mean in your day-to-day life? Like the mind state you have to live when you're constantly thinking, is could it be? Is it today? It's my, is today my day? Mm-hmm. How do you live a normal life? It's interesting, especially at this particular time, at this particular moment. How are we meant to live normal lives? Whether it's we're talking immigration or as black people in Britain, as citizens, how are we meant to live a normal life? If, mm-hmm. if for example, my parents were involved in the wind, in the wind rush thing, having to look for their passports, they were naturalised. Well, aren't we supposed to be members? Aren't we guaranteed under citizenship? Aren't we guaranteed certain rights, inalienable rights, as pe- as people would say, right? Right, exactly. But I mean, I suppose what the I mean, the, what that chapter c- comes out of is really, as I haven't maybe made clear, the methods for the book involved meeting people in Jamaica, then moving backwards and interviewing friends and stuff. And when I went to see some people's friends, a couple of times people said things that surprised me slightly. So they'd say, one guy, Jay. So, so Jay moved to Northampton um, for uni and stayed on and was working in retail when I saw him. And, and as he started explaining, the police were quite a big feature of his life in West London. And, and we talked a bit about police racism and hassling him when he was a teenager. Um, he then said, to be honest, that's one of the reasons I'm staying around here and not going back to London where my mum is and stuff. It's because I feel like if I was there, it might be a bit more hot and I might get caught. I might just end up getting in a situation. So he's kind of saying, I'm not interested in committing any crime. It's not like I'm going to start selling drugs at this moment. It's more, I've got, and I've got starting to have a family here. It's more that if I go there, I've just got memories of the police giving me hassle and I haven't got my stay fully sorted yet. I'm still on temporary leave because I wasn't able to fix it after I got done for something really minor back in the past. So there's, there's this sense that, and it was seeing Chris that made him, is seeing Chris get removed and made him be like, oh shit, this like this system is not working the way I thought it would. I thought they'd let Chris stay because we had his kids and he had his mum and he's like 
only done his, you know, he's like done his time and he's, he's, he's not a major crime. And so people think, oh, no, you won't get deported for that. And then their friends do. And they're like, wow, I need to reassess my situation. And so there's a few people who made that really clear to me, as you say, Chantal. Um, in particular, young black men who were over-policed in their youth, being like, okay, not only in Jay's circumstances, maybe when I get my British book or maybe when I sort it out, I could think about going back to London with friends or or whatever, but also people who have British passports, but who are migrants, who naturalised and moved from Jamaica um, to people, then say, oh, no, but they could could still take it from us. Like, they could still take the passport. They could still strip the citizenship. That's what I've heard. And they're not wrong, right? I mean, they, you know, Shamima Begum, the, the number of cases that involve national security, some of the guys who were involved in the Rochdale. Um, I didn't know that until in reading in your book. I didn't know that some of those guys had their... Yeah, so I mean, the guys who were involved in the, in the like, massive sexual violence and abuse of young women and girls in Rochdale, three of them were stripped of their British citizenship so they can be deported to Pakistan when they come out of prison. And obviously that case is one of those that worked to expand the, the remit of citizenship stripping because we all agree, you know, that these offences are horrendous and incredibly painful to think about. And that, so people then in their kind of most illiberal and murderous mode think that taking someone's citizenship in that circumstance is perfectly legitimate. But, but of course, yeah. we are worried that that gets, that, that leads the way for expanding, you know, taking someone's citizenship away from them, which as you say, is supposed to be a set of fundamental rights, but that, I mean, citizens have never been equal. This is people who study racism and are anti-racist know that. But what might be slightly new now is the way in which the protections of citizenship are especially reversible. So, yeah, there's lots of cases we might want to look at for that, like Shamima Begum and like the Rochdale case and like a whole number of national security cases. Um, But what's interesting is that these guys, these black guys who are certainly not going to be accused of being terrorists or, or traffickers at any point, um, are still feeling that it's filtering down. They see Chris get deported. They hear some it on the news. They know that you can have your citizenship taken. They know that someone with indefinite leave got deported, and they don't quite know the difference between indefinite leave and having a passport. And they get confused. Like there's a sense of fear, and that that is what for me is interesting. I suppose is that if if racism is always being remade and it's historically specific, then if we want to know how lots of people in Britain are experiencing racism, both materially and in how they feel about the country they're in and belonging and cultural identity and all these things. We need to think about the law and how that filters through it. One of the guys says the rules were always changing. You never yeah. know when yeah, the rules yeah. are yeah, yeah. 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 In your research, did you kind of do a comparative piece with, you mentioned something about Australian but, but, about backpackers. So would they go through a similar, is it a similar experience? So the idea of that kind of arbitrariness of the kind of state or, or of their own status. I think that's a really good way of thinking about the difference, right? Because... One of the things I'm trying to argue in this chapter is that when I say Britain is multi-status, so that's the term I use to try and get at the fact that uh, there's more people in the country who don't have British citizenship who are vulnerable to immigration controls. And as we know, the hostile environment means those immigration controls are everywhere and they interact with them all the time in the university classroom, in the hospital, you know, waiting room, whatever. So multi-status, Britain's multi-status, that's something I say. But in this chapter, I'm trying to say, but how that how status comes to mean things related to racism is is articulated in relation to racism so two people with the same status and i make this point in the book just strictly an overstayer or the au pair working too many hours might be the it might be the uh, and i'm doing my quote marks here illegal immigrant when compared with marcus or louis who are both got yeah. a free right to remain and to work and to claim benefits for three years but yes yeah, louis who's had 
two of his cousins deported to Jamaica and one of them being murdered, the, who he grew up with. And it's Louis who's still scared that if he gets arrested because the police are always around, that he'll face deportation as well. So his they and his interactions with the state mean that even having status is not enough because he's, he's not only lived through people with status getting deported, uh, but he's still being hassled by the police, right? So because he's a young black working class guy. And if you compare that to, I'm sorry, and so Marcus is the other person who got, gets his stay, then says, oh, but the Home Office haven't sent me my biometric residence permit, which means I can work and claim benefits. And I, they're testing me. They want me to fuck up and commit more crime. So he, even when he's been given his stay, he doesn't get his card. He, he reads that in terms of, you know, they're, they're pushing me because they, they want me to be sent back. That's what they want. So this is that day again. Whereas the Australian backpacker or the French au pair working too many hours, they're the actual ones in violation of immigration law. The police are not a part of their lives. There's no surveillance on them as, as white people work in moving through public space who are, who are racialized as white and seen as middle class and not seen as a, as a threat and not seen as, um, <clears throat> as people to be surveyed. And so, you know, we saw this reading today about, you know, the, the, in America, the, the far right vigilante 17 year old who kills people and then is walking by the police without being arrested. There's this way in which, you know, that there's nothing. And so this is why the kinds of the ways in which we're used to perhaps a bit more used to talking about racism, you know, surveying who gets policed, who gets, uh, who gets subject to violence by, by either representatives of the state or by public in the street. Those are things we might be, might be more familiar with talking about. And I'm trying to connect them to a, to a set of laws and policies and look at how those policies and laws are lived and therefore to change what people understand about where they are and the questions like belonging. Basically, I just think if we're concerned about racist violence, about feelings of belonging, um, about identity, which which is the way we come through sociological work on race and ethnicity, then we might get an improved and more interesting and more radical and kind of just shake us up a bit when we start to think about immigration law. And these stories, I think, get at some of that. I just really need to ask how you deal with it. In, in particular, when you're talking about the police racism and the criminalisation that the black men experience before mm-hmm. deportation and the men that we talk about after deportation as well, um, that, are, that are left behind, you talk about describing racism almost seems too extreme for them. And actually, they want to sort of say it's something else, but they don't really know what that is. And then they eventually say it's racism. Like, I feel like that's something which we come across so much in sociology and anthropology, like people that are experiencing really direct racism, not necessarily wanting to call it that. Why is that? Why do you think that happens? I know there's lots of reasons, but I always like to hear, do you, do you agree that you saw that? Because that's yeah, why yeah, yeah, yeah. it almost like wanted to just say, oh, it wasn't that bad. It's like, yeah. oh, that's pretty bad and very yeah. racist. There's a few things going on. And, and I was kind of... There's a bit that was in the thesis that's stripped out and that might go in a paper that's also about some stuff like uh, related to this. So I'll try and come on to it. So, so the immediate answer is that is is that post race the the logic of post race creates certain kinds of silences. And David Theo Goldberg's written on this. Alana Lenton's written on this. Maybe Song has that paper I think that's useful on on this. So for the kind of sociology geeks among the listeners, for people who aren't sociology geeks among the listeners and don't want to just hear three academics' names, I suppose what I mean is that the power of racism works through partly kind of gaslighting everyone who's subject to it uh, into feeling that this isn't really racism. You're playing the race card. Um, it's not about racism, it's about individual failures, you know, the kind of inability to talk about about racism as anything that might structure the present, rather something that's a relic of the past that you see when the EDL go on a march, 
or as something that's kind of, you know, can be trained out of us with implicit bias training. And so there's a way which racism gets minimized and even naming race becomes unsayable, becomes really difficult. So that when you ask black people who've been subject to the most extreme forms of racism, uh, can you talk to me about times you've experienced racism? They just, you know, Chris, for example. Like, I haven't really experienced haven't really experienced it. it yeah. <laughs> which is which is just a problem for us analytically but kind of a useful one to think about what post what the power of the post-racial and what becomes sayable at different times and and i think that that's that's the main overarching thing but i kind of wanted to move beyond move beyond that as well while recognizing it because uh i mean so for example chris says um when i ask him if he's experienced racism he says oh yeah i can name like two times and he names a time when someone calls him the n-word out of a car shouting to him and his sister and he names the time when someone tells him to go back to africa or to go back to his country on the bus um so these are kinds of the, the these are the ones that all liberals would agree right and then and everyone would agree is a, is a form of racism that's bad but he doesn't name he doesn't really talk about the police he doesn't really talk about being deported back to jamaica he doesn't really mm-hmm. talk about even though he can talk about histories of jamaica how how he's being treated like shit by people in jamaica when he's employed is like slavery so he can use the languages there but he doesn't necessarily make the connections there's a lot of work that's been done to make people understand racism only terms as the most flagrant obvious interactional examples so that all of us are kind of illiterate in how to talk about it whereas so that's what's hard when you interview people and they don't use the same definition as you i suppose but the thing i was interested in beyond that was when I asked Ricardo about whether the police were racist, who's subject to a lot of racism, he said, he, it wasn't that he said the police weren't racist, he did say they were racist, but he said it wasn't just about me being black. Um, so I said, I sort of, I give this bit in the book where I'm sort of like, because I listen back to myself and listening back to yourself, as anyone who's been interviewed will know it's painful because you sound annoying and you speak too much. <laughs> so I'm, I'm there trying to say, um, you know, but like your experiences with the police, like, you know, the police are much more likely to search black men and da da da, and here's some statistics on it. And, I've read about this and blah, blah, blah. And like, isn't that what's happening to you? And he's trying to, I think he's just trying to refine it because he knows that the person who he's experienced some of the most ex- similar experiences to him was his friend who's half Pakistani. Just kind of say, trying to say, no, it wasn't just about that, um, which is an interesting conversation to have. And he's also trying to say there were like Albanian people who experienced some of the same thing in my group. So he's trying to, he's trying to kind of capture Class. A really local situation, which is it is about class. It's also, of course, about race because even the Albanian and the half Pakistani are yeah. associated with black, with black young men, with a group that's predominantly black. There's loads of and there's loads Definitely. of ways you could still call it anti-black racism. There's loads of ways yeah. it's still racist and it's and it's and class and race are never totally discreet anyway. But mm. um, but he's kind of capturing something which I found useful in terms of its local specificity, right? Like he's. He's telling us that it wasn't lived as an abstraction. It wasn't lived as I was six times more likely than my white counterpart to get stopped and searched. He's kind of describing a park, a kind of geography in his area, a police officers who he knew and police officers who knew his name and his family and had a surveillance on his house and because his brother was in trouble. The reason that's useful, I suppose, I suppose for me is because I think that he's pointing to something important that you get from ethnographic work, which you wouldn't otherwise get, which is to say his way of seeing the world doesn't split into the kind of categories that we might tend to think about. He sees connections between some people in his area who experience some kinds of things who might not be racialized as black. And he sees them as his brethren in the same way he sees his black friends. And so he finds it a bit funny to talk in racial terms, which, yeah. which, which in academic ways, in activist circles, and sometimes I mean, what people might call campus politics, we're often more comfortable with, in my experience, in saying that this is a specific experience separate to that one than some people are when they describe their lives to you. 
but that doesn't mean that he's totally right. Like this is the point as well. There's there's things. No, that's really it's such a good point. It's such a good point. Like no, I, I think I think you said it really well. And then I'm trying to the, the other times when people have. I mean, so that this is a thing that doesn't go in the book. I don't think. But when I said I was chatting to Danico about um, about the same kinds of questions as you mentioned, Chantal, and he said he said he mentioned at one point he said uh, this place in south of Birmingham is like mainly like white people. Am I allowed to say that? And I and I just stuck with that. I was like, what isn't that funny? Like someone who's experienced racist policing and deportation to be cautious about saying the area is predominantly white people who live there. And I, I know which area he's, I know which area he's talking about. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I know it's your side. So. Um, but why do you think he's saying that? Is it, is, well, is this it is the thing. Is that I think it's the same. You could say it's the same post-race thing. It makes everyone anxious about naming things and the power of kind of whiteness works by being invisible. So when you name it, you feel comfortable. There's loads of explanations people have made. But I'm also interested in whether underneath it and underneath it with Ricardo, who in this paper I'm hopefully going to write, I make the point more clearly because Ricardo really is a proper humanist about these kinds of things. He's really like, you know, Gilroy-esque about saying, yeah. about wanting to be in a world without race. Um, without mm. ra- not only without racism but without without racial thinking or racial classification right and so I think there's a hint of that in Danico and I think he's kind of saying um, but my partner who's mixed race her mum's white like and she was one of the nicest people to me and one of the most important people to me in in the UK mm. she was the one of the people who had my back when my dad didn't right so I don't think that means he's saying white people are good and black people aren't but I think he's kind of like I feel a bit funny about you know being associated with yeah with homogenizing with 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 just basically uncomfortable with using racial categories which there's an argument that we should that we should all be more uncomfortable with using racial categories I find that really interesting because I think if people who are subject to some of the most horrendous forms of of racist of racism of racial racist violence retain a kind of faith that racial categories won't ever help won't ever really help us understand people as people, they won't really ever help us move beyond the the acts that have been done to me and the things that have been done to me. If they can feel that, then then that's hopeful. And I suppose when I say Gilroy, I kind of mean, you know, Gilroy and Du Bois have sort of wanted to talk about how the gift of kind of the black freedom struggle is is a kind of humanism that comes from the, a place of, of being totally violated through racism. So it's actually the experience of, of being subject to racism that makes you that, that the gift of, of, of what that cult, that black culture has brought the world is a sort of radical humanism or an anti-racist humanism or a planetary humanism. And I think that's what I'm going to try and write about in the future is, is it needs to be done carefully. But I think, I think those, I think that is how those, those two people in particular think. It's not how everyone I met, I met thinks. And it's okay if people also say, you know, different kinds of things and understand things differently and retain an anger and a resentment about white people in general, yeah. because they've encountered so much, so much fuckery as you say but but it's interesting when people when people you know seek this distance and i don't think it's i don't think it's just a simple oh it's because they're contained by post-race it might actually be because less because they're constrained but because they have a lot of wisdom to impart to the rest of them they're sensitive they have a sensitivity yeah. to those kind of things right Definitely. so they're, they're they're mindful of how how it feels to be excluded or classified right and they're mindful so i was looking at when you speak about the guy when you were at to jamaica Mindful experience of being totally excluded, even amongst your own people, in inverted commas, your own people, you, you're an outsider continually. So 
this idea would kind of kind of take it back to what you said uh, something earlier in the podcast about revoking someone's citizenship. Mm-hmm. Like that means one of the key tenets of identity and belonging. Who, where do you belong to? Who are you? If you have no citizenship, who are you? Right, exactly. And I think what you're what you're saying there about having experienced that level of exclusion leading to certain forms of uh, political insight, hopeful resources for the rest of us is is kind of one of the reasons why. Uh, studying, you know, racism and anti-racist struggle is not just about uh, an identity claim for, you know, for for us guys. It's about also thinking that there's so many lessons to be taken from the people who are subject to that kind of violation and how their struggle for freedom will be freedom for everyone. And, you know, that's the Combahee River Collective. That's, that's for me, kind of pulse through Black thought, Black culture, Black politics, that these guys are in some ways echoing the way you can't not hear that's how that's how I read what these guys are saying. God, I'm a bit taken aback because I feel <laughs> really it's such an important point, and that's such a better way. Yeah, that's such a good way to go beyond the question that I'm asking about why people don't think it's racism and how people think about racial categories. Actually, it might be because they're at a destination where we need to be more at. Well, the question that I wanted to ask you, Luke, I told you there's going to be a little bit of a a critical one. You make the point about racism throughout the book, about Mm -hmm. how you want it to be moved beyond discrimination, prejudice and intolerance, Mm -hmm. and how immigration law and bordering can possibly give us the tools to do this and I just wanted to ask you do you not think that we can possibly do both just going into the everyday now and thinking about people that have got more secure status and using your term of multi-status Britain and thinking about how conversations about deportation become reproduced in the everyday and it made me think about was it in January there was a charter flight and I remember speaking to I think I was at, I think I was at din- a dinner or something with some friends that aren't academics that aren't part of any anti-racist organizing mm-hmm. and I remember hearing them talking about it because it was making like quite a lot of like news and stuff and I, I didn't really engage too much one of them said yeah but aren't isn't one of them a rapist and isn't one of them a drug addict and it made me think about how like in this instance, the black people that are being de- deported to Jamaica, there has to be a multi-layered dehumanisation of these people in order for it to be legitimate that they are being stripped away from their homes, even if they have committed a crime. And I do feel like those things have to be reproduced by everyday people as well as the state and those that ho- hold those powers. So I do, I, I see your point about racism, but I almost like don't necessarily want to abandon how prejudice and intolerances are discussed. I think Gargi spoke about it a little bit as well on the Open Democracy podcast. Yeah. And I did think, I was like, I do see that point and I want to keep pushing myself to be more like that. However, I do think there is got to be some power in how, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm talking more about electoral politics as well, like how people become mobilised by racism and in, within the everyday and how that makes them um, vote in a particular way or whatever. But I do feel like there's something about the way prejudice and racism in everyday in the everydayness of some of it can actually facilitate the men in the book, the men that you spent time with, being not seen as human, basically. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's important. And I think that when people... The kinds of people that I hang about with sometimes are guilty of, I guess, seeing the everyday as a site of something more superficial. And then what we really need to be talking about is capital and the state 
uh, and these big words and these big scary structural forces. I think, I mean, what I'm trying to do, and maybe it doesn't always always come off, or maybe there's points where it's it's not made clearly, I suppose is to say, it's not that we shouldn't be concerned about prejudice, discrimination, and intolerance in, in the everyday. It's that what do you do then with the kind of yeah. overbearing fact of the kind of everywhereness of those forms of violation that we know have experienced or that are that we see that we share videos of you know like the bus you know and I know you got that who's that mm. the one who came on here and talked about micro politics of the bus and racism talking about the bus is a microclimate of white supremacy right exactly microcosm, yeah. so the microclimate or microcosm both work for me of white supremacy on, on the in the bus or the bus stop I, I think my point with Chris for example is that it's not like why are you naming those two times where someone told you to go back to Africa or called you the N-word? Like, obviously those things stick. And I'd probably, if someone's, you know, I've got a couple of times like that that have stuck. The point is why, what, what is it about the way we think about racism that means you haven't connected that to the fact that you were then detained indefinitely and put, and put on a flight with a bunch of other black people? Why is the optics of that not speakable as racism? Uh, and that's just the optics of it. Never mind the kind of structures and the the reality and the kind of silent misery that comes with being excluded in various ways. So I suppose what I'm trying to to do is work out what the how we analyse those everyday acts of prejudice and discrimination and situate them in relation to the law. Because for me, it does matter that we don't just say something abstract about the law, about racist structure, about the economy, about capitalism but that we do listen to people and that you know those interactions with the police officer matter and how we make sense of them those interactions on the bus really matter but i think that when i'm trying to critique ways of thinking about racism as intolerance and bigotry and discrimination it's not to say that racism isn't those things it's to say that it's more than those things if we stay in the terrain where when we look for what racism looks like we look for discrete episodes then we might miss the wider force of racist structures and as and as you you put it better than, than I have, but what those people um, think, you put it really well when you say about how, you know, there's a relationship between the policies and obviously the mentalities of people who, who vote, for example. So I did door knocking and being confronted with that, being outside of London and Manchester. It scored me! It's, it's a lot. <laughs> Realising that there's actually whole places that you'd never, ever want to live in which people consume certain kinds of media and just are incredible are voting and are incredibly racist, at least in, I don't know if they are in all of their activities, but their political constituency, as a constituency, they are a racist political constituency. And that is how Boris happens. And that is terrifying. And I think that is related to the kinds of policies and the kinds of laws and the kinds of law and order policing that can be done against people. So there's a relationship between law, the kind of white majoritarian constituency, and then the ways in which young black people experience the police and the they and the schools and the state and the social workers yeah. and care. And then immigration law. And I suppose the connections I want to ask us to build on, even if the book doesn't do it fully, is is always making those links. Because what, what I mean, to put it crassly, what kind of white people and liberals are happy with is if we stick with a definition of racism that remains on the discrimination, prejudice and intolerance. Because then punish, criminalise or try and educate the white fascist racist skinheads and you do implicit bias training, diversity training for everyone else. So if we stay with racism in that, define it in that terrain, that's the problem. And the problem is not that, that form, those forms of racism should be ignored or that they don't matter or that they're, they're kind of trivial compared to detention centres. I don't think it's helpful. And I think the point that you're also hinting at is those, those people in that dinner party, I, I, it's really sad that they 
said that there wasn't one of them a rapist, there wasn't one of them a drug dealer or drug addict or whatever. But I do think what's useful is when you can connect people's everyday experiences of humiliation and microaggressions to galvanise them into political solidarity and activity with migrants. And that connection is, is, is not always made and it's difficult. And this is why I'm so fascinated by people like, I don't know if you follow Cash Tastic's story or Cash, he is. He was deported to Jamaica in 2014 and came back in 2019. He's done these interviews. Incredibly lucid, intelligent guy who's been, you know, communicating his story through music and now interviews and stuff. But, but there you see how you read the comments under the YouTube and it's not like the normal reading the comments. This is a good thing. Loads of people just have a kind of common sense, which is about like, nah, they should never have dipped him, da 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 da. Like, the police said, da 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 da. Like, so glad he's back, right? And so you see that this whole constituencies of people, young working class people, a lot, mostly black, but not all, not only, right? Who see the police as a kind of a sort of enemy? They know that they 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 mess up, like that they mess up people's lives, that they harass people in their estate. And so, when someone gets deported in that context, or when Jay Huss went into prison or whatever, people's common sense is not that what you heard at the dinner party is something else. And so I'm really interested in how an anti-racist project should say, because of what you know from your experiences in work and school, because of what you know about the way the police are in your estate, you should see yourself as connected to people like people in this book, but also the East, the Eastern European and Albanian and Pakistani people who are in detention because they're, it's the same kinds of system and logics which are going to lead to they're going to come for us. I think it's simple kind of, you know, anti-racist or class solidarity that we can get. And I think that's what I hope the articulation, I mean, I don't think I do it, but that's the political work I think is to say, this is never just about our humiliation in discrete episodes, even if I'm not trying to devalue how important it is. If someone wants to talk about, organize around or complain online about being humiliated in work or subject to bullshit in school, those things are important. Um, But it would be ideally what we want to do is take all that energy and put it towards a political project, which, which I think dismantling borders would have to be central. It can't just be diversity hype because we, we've seen that and we know that universities love it and they do it with decolonial. They'll probably try and do it with abolition. Um, and our struggle is always to push for something something better, something more transformative. Oh, I'm officially schooled. That's a mic drop from you, Luke. That was a brilliant response. <laughs> To my critique, no, you're. And you know what? I'm actually remembering. I feel like I asked you about. I asked you this maybe same question about a year ago, and you said to me, "Look, if someone's calling someone the n-word on the street, you need to recognise that that's bordering." And my yeah. mind was blown. I've just remembered you saying that exact thing to me. Like yeah. that's what it's about. I mean, that's, that, that simplest example that I've used with like students and stuff different, and, and like with I've done talks to, like people who are even younger, and I think. The things that we know as racism and the three example I've used are, I mean, people don't know this when you ask young people, but, you know, KBW written on walls in white paint, which was keep Britain white around powerlism time. Yeah? So there was a whole thing about the National Front writing, keep Britain white. So that's one thing we recognise as racism. Another thing is go back to your country, go back to where you're from, which, I mean, I heard in school. I don't know if you guys did. It's kind of standard. And where are you from? Where are you really from? You know, like these things we rehearse and we laugh about and we make memes about and stuff. Those three things should be thought of in relationship to borders, right? Like citizenship, and Nadine Elanani's work is really important on this. Citizenship is a technology of whiteness and has been since post-war years. So British citizenship has always been an attempt to guard, produce and protect whiteness. So there's, there's, there's the law and there's keep Britain white. Go back to your country, that's what deportation does. And where are you from, where are you really from is everyday border in the hostile environment. And I think to make those connections to people and sort of say, it's not that one thing, we should be looking at one thing and not the other. It's that we can't understand the everyday racism without thinking about 
the nation state and how it's bordered. And I think when we start making those connections, my violation on the street then becomes a kind of energy and a stepping stone onto going to the march outside the home office or going to shouting outside of Yarlswood. And people do this, and that's where I see energy being really, really usefully made rather than us kind of separated out from each other and fighting for the scraps, which is kind of what the state would like us to be doing. In Christina Sharp's work, that idea that is kind of transfigured over time and space. So she's talking about the kind of the Haitian refugee mirroring the kind of Phyllis Wheatley in 1762. Like there's the kind of that, that, the idea that this one particular struggle is not linked to its locality. There's a kind of universal kind of notion of a struggle. Mm. And you can build solidarities from that. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's really beautiful. And I think that's kind of what, what I'm hoping for. For, and I guess what the book hints at, even if it remains really a document of a few people's lives, like that's the pulse throughout it. And that's kind of what people help me to appreciate the importance of through doing it. It definitely comes across, Luke. It really does. Thank you so much for that, Luke. That was incredible. Like, as per inspiring us, we are going to be giving away a copy of the book. If you haven't got the book already, this is just essential reading, I think, for students beyond the academy every oh that's actually a question we were going to ask you Luke. Yeah, yeah who should be reading this it's really written for it's not written just for people in the university it's not it's it's written in a way hopefully that makes it readable for people who haven't gone through the kind of um the set of sociological texts or whatever or they're not in our field necessarily because i think the stories themselves should be read by a wider group of people and i kind of think it's for it's really for people who are committed to challenging racism, I think, or on the journey towards being. They don't have to have a CV which says, oh, the organising they've done. It's not about that because I don't have that CV either. But for people who who are starting to try and make connections, who are concerned about racism. And also, I kind of partly wrote it imagining that the people who were interviewed in it are going to be able to read it and understand good parts of it. So, yeah, it's written it's written as, um, as Les Back writes with the people who who are featured in it kind of over my shoulder or on my shoulder and hopefully for anyone who's kind of trying to work out how to challenge racism and borders. Amazing. Thanks, Amazing. So much, thanks so much for having me again, guys. Sorry, I'm going to lost the words because it's just so powerful. He speaks more, man. He does, he does. He like, more, it like makes me, it sort of relaxes me, do you know what I mean? <laughs> it does, it's got a relaxing <laughs> Guys, Luke's going to be joining us if you're a patron. So go over to the patron now. If you're not a patron, then you'll have another episode next week, of course. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our patreon if not you can always support us by subscribing rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform